Welcome to Ubaldi Reports. On this podcast, we will be discussing the effects of the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision in its 6-3 decision upholding federal subsidies in the Affordable Care Act, or as it's commonly known as Obamacare. Now, we will not be discussing the legal arguments regarding the U.S. Supreme Court's decision, but what we will discuss on this podcast is what does the law mean now, and how is it going to be implemented as we move forward? The purpose of this podcast on Ubaldi Reports is to show what are the challenges ahead for Obamacare and its impact on the nation's health care system and, for that matter, the U.S. economy. Today's guest is a recognized expert on Obamacare and who has previously been on Ubaldi Reports discussing the Affordable Care Act. On Ubaldi Reports, we will be speaking with Les Saland, owner of A.L. Saland Insurance Solution, which focuses on all aspects of the healthcare insurance industry. Now, let's welcome Les Saland to the show. How's it going, Les? It's going great, actually. Hey, well, thank you for coming back on the show again. I mean, as we discussed earlier, healthcare and the Affordable Care Act, I think, is a very complex and confusing piece of legislation that I'm not even sure most of our lawmakers, and for that matter, the general public, understand what it, what it is. Oh, that goes without a doubt. I mean, I used to be in IT, and if you looked at what, a, what programming code looks like versus what the user interface looks like, it's night and day. I mean, it's, it's very similar that if you, you, you like the GUI interface of Windows, but if you saw what it took, what it took to make all that happen, you'd be amazed. And I think that's where we're at with the health care, um, the Affordable Care Act. And I know, yeah, both sides have their own views on how it should be done. But can you explain that recent Supreme Court decision of last week and what was the what was the impact on Obamacare? Well, the impact actually, well, you know, and for us was was very positive um, for my business and that it stabilizes everything we've done. It's taken out the uncertainty not just for us, but for the uh, consumer and even for the insurance carriers, because the insurance carriers will start there. Their premiums are based upon, you know, the, the risk pool, the number of people that are going to be in that pool, you know, and, and what the total premiums are going to be. If those tax subsidies go away, all of a sudden they, they're going to lose a lot of people that they're building their premiums based upon uh, on their input, you know. So, for them, it actually stabilized what they're doing um, as far as charging in premiums. For the consumer, they're now feel a, a lot more at ease that they're going to continue on getting their low cost, or relatively low cost insurance premiums, and that's going to continue on. And for us, and not you know from for us as an agency, but for agents in general. Um, you know, the risk that we were looking at was, you know, we could have lost, you know, half of our business if this went the other way. Now, but are you getting enough people into the system? Because wasn't it predicated that you had to get a, a certain amount of people to cover all those who didn't have um, health insurance before? Well, certainly they're getting a, a great deal of people. Um, I guess it's up to the actuaries to determine if they're getting enough um, because premiums are no longer based upon uh, projected claims. That's, that was taken away from them as part of the law. 
So uh, are they getting enough is the question. And where the um, administration was touting that they needed to get the young and healthy, um, well, once you allow somebody, you know, young, healthy up until the age of 26 to stay on their parents' plan, that's not getting the young and healthy really enrolled on individual plans. And I don't think it was so much the young and healthy that they wanted to get enrolled. I think it was more of the middle age and old and and a little bit old that 30 to 55 year old segment that was healthy because they it was all about less you know less usage and getting more premium you know you take a 25 year old may only have a 250 dollar a month premium but a 35 year old with a spouse and two kids or a 40 year old with a spouse and two kids might have 800 dollars a month in premium um, so they really wanted those folks. Uh, the real problem is uh, that the some of the more uh, wealthier folks, the more um, you know, the, the higher earners, they're the one really the ones they need because those are the ones that are not qualifying for the tax subsidies. So if you don't get enough of those, and we get more people getting tax subsidies, well, where's that money coming from? And I think that's really going to be the bigger problem. But see, that was the biggest. That was the issue with the this decision by the Supreme Court. Was federal subsidies able to be given to states who didn't set up their exchange? So when you say something about the subsidies, but I think it goes back to: Are they getting the people they need? Because you can't give subsidies to everybody. If someone gets something for free, somebody's paying. But are they having enough people to pay into the system to cover those who are getting the subsidies? And if not, where are they getting the money from? Because, you know, if the average subsidy was, I think I read where it was $272 per month, and you got 10 people getting $272 per month, that's $2,700 per month. How many people that are not getting tax subsidies are paying that $2,700? What's that cumulative total? Um, I don't know. I don't see where it's where the, I don't see how all that the tax subsidy money is coming from other people's premiums. So and that's one of the reasons the medical device tax was put in there, but that is getting bipartisan uh, support to be pulled back out. Um, some of it is being uh, channeled, believe it or not, even though they said it's not coming from Medicare dollars, Medicare was subsidized from, from other areas and it's those areas that are being uh, redirected. Which you made a point about the medical device tax. Now we mentioned this on the previous show. It, I think, from just from remember right, it, it hasn't been defined. What do they consider a medical device tax? Well, is, 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 is had has that been defined? Um, I don't know that it's been completely defined, as I don't think the law itself has been completely defined. And I think that is the 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 lack of definition is by design that ambiguity gives them flexibility to change things or to include or exclude based upon uh, various factors you know we could say lobby dollars might be one of those types of things that will uh, either lead to something being included or excluded but we know that it's going to be uh, like uh, pacemakers are going to be some of those uh, devices and those things that get placed into people's, you know, bodies, um, those types of things. The problem, you know, which I thought about after we spoke last time is some of these medical devices that we see now, which are very costly, and that's why that 2.3% is going to create potentially a lot of revenue. 
is what happens when those devices, either they find some less expensive way of making those. Now, all of a sudden, the cost of those devices go down and the revenue from those devices will consequently go down as well. That's going to be a problem, too. No, that's a good point. But the thing that we mentioned before, when you talk about the medical device tax and just what you said, businesses is about businesses to maximize their profits and keep costs low. Has it been defined that where they get those medical devices? Who's um, to say they don't buy them, let's say, overseas instead of in the United States? Well, that's the whole thing about about private businesses. They will they will figure out a way to make money. That's what that's what makes capitalism capitalism. Is they're going to figure out a way a way to make money, whether it's getting a, a you know, I, I we did a thing not too long ago on three D printing, and three D printing is going to be able to eventually print some of these um, artificial valves, these, you know, these uh, stents, they can be able to print those off in an operating room that's going to be based exactly upon what that patient's going to need. When that happens, you know, granted, uh, the cost that the hospital is going to charge may be going up as well, but theoretically, the price could, could, could come down tremendously. It could be outsourced to a third-party uh, a third, you know, another nation. It could be, there's a whole slew of things that could drive a lot of these um, manufacturing costs and sales costs down. And so, but e- no, I'm sorry to interrupt, but even if they, you know, business is business, but if they get these medical devices, let's say a pacemaker or an MRI from another country, that's going to create, because I know like Florida, a lot of the medical devices are made, I think, in two states, primarily for California and Florida. But if they buy them from overseas, that has the potential to lose jobs here in America. Well, we can open up that can of worms if you want, but doesn't that, uh, was the Trans-Pacific Pact do that? <laughs> well, but see, that wasn't defined in, um, I don't know if that was defined through medical devices or anything like that. It was mainly some other things in Asia with agriculture and some other things, but the president still has to negotiate this. I don't know what countries overseas make medical devices or where, the, where are most medical devices made. Are they made in the United States or are they made in Europe or Asia? That I'm not sure of. And, and the future is so undefined that way that it, we really don't know. I mean, we, we just really don't know. Um, it's like, like hurricanes down here in Florida. You look at the spaghetti model. You know, it could go anywhere. And who's to say? So, like as we know, business is going to figure out a way to make money, and um, we can take today's current conditions and apply it to next year. But I don't think we can take today's current conditions and apply it to three or four years from now because things are going to change so so tremendously in you know in three or four years even that um, they'll come up with some some type of solution that we can't even think about right now. No, and, and that's correct, and that goes back to it's going to be a, it's still going to be a political issue. But earlier in your comments, you mentioned the 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 latitude that was given to the executive branch, and I know that's what the Supreme Court said. They gave a lot of latitude to the executive. But what would happen is, you know, politics is politics. The Democrats in the, the White House now sees the the uh, Affordable Care Act one way. What happens when a Republican comes in? Oh. How does that change things? <laughs> that's uh, that that's going to be very interesting because, as we know, the Supreme Court uh, ruled uh, made some rulings based upon the executive branch's interpretation. 
And so that opens up not just the, the can of worms for the Affordable Care Act, but for a whole lot of other bills that are out there uh, of what is the uh, executive branch's interpretation. That That's just the, the ambiguity of the politics. And I think that may have been kind of the play that the Supreme Court was was playing with because they wanted to stay, uh, you know, within the confines of the politics, for, I think, for fear of if they rule the other way, then the Supreme Court now becomes the enemy. So that, Correct. So they yeah. want to stay with the prevailing, you know, thought of who's in charge. And so when we have a change in the guard, they now set themselves up to be behind whoever's in charge. So basically what it is is the Supreme Court or the, the Roberts Court threw it back to the, the legislature or the Congress saying, you made this mess. You guys need to fix it. Well, but- I, I don't even think they did that. I think that what they did was, well, I mean, to some extent they did that. But what they did here was they said, we think this is what they meant. And so they redefined the legislature themselves. And okay. that's the danger of what everyone's talking about when the Supreme Court is starting to make legislation and not uh, judge the legislation, not to interpret it. Yeah. And I, I think that's very that's very dangerous, a really slippery slope. There's a lot of things in a lot of different areas now are coming out, whether you want to talk about the same sex marriage, uh, EPA, all these different things that are coming out now where they just created, a, you know, a, opened up a can of worms and. and, and We'll see where, where all that trans, transpires, but it's uh, we're going to see a lot of activity, I think. Well, no, we are, because I know for the Republicans, when they run for uh, president in 2016, almost all of them are universally saying, mm-hmm. we're going to repeal, we're going to repeal, and we're going to replace this this law. But I think the problem they're going to have, that may be sound great on the campaign trail, but they're not going to have the same political, um, I guess, not political focus or political will that they had in 2010, which, which mean is they had 60 senators from one party. It passed on a, a, a partisan vote. If they're going to repeal it, they're going to have to get at least eight to 10, if not more senators and so many in the House to repeal it and replace it with something else. I don't see repeal. I honestly, I don't see repeal if the, if the, if whatever party is going, you know, the, we'll use the Republican Party they have got for the in the court of public opinion. They must stop using the word repeal. Either fix it, replace it, whatever, but stop repealing it, because like it or not, there's a lot of people that act, that 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 want this law, whether they think it's good or bad. They they want, and there's a lot of people that need it. And from and our, and from and even in my opinion, from a from a uh, humane standpoint, it's a it's not a bad thing. How the implementation and how the, and the rollout, which is maybe half complete, maybe a little bit more than half complete, but some of the other things that are, we're going to see coming down the pipe are not so good. Um, but I don't think that the uh, majority want to see uh, a repeal. So replace has to be there. Replace or fix. But 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 see, even if they did replace it, let's just go with that argument. They did replace it. I still go back to the political dynamics that you had in 2010, which was almost the president had the largest Democratic majority since 1978. Republicans aren't going to have that. If they say they take the White House in 2016, 
there's a 50-50 chance they're going to keep the Senate. Even if they do, they'll probably lose a couple seats. So you're still going to need, even if you just re- you fix it or you tweak it or whatever you do to it, you're going to need the other side. There's no other way around it because you have to get 60 votes to pass anything major like that out of the Senate. Exactly why repeal is not, not an option. And, and and I would agree with you. I just don't think repeal, but that doesn't play to a base. But that's another another issue and another time for the politics side. But I agree. Once it's in, it's in. Now they got to figure out how to maneuver around it. And I think there's, and correct me if I'm wrong, aren't there two big things coming down the pike and that one is the employer mandate and the Cadillac tax. Well, and the employer mandate is here uh, starting with January 1st. Um, but I don't think the employer mandate is that big of a deal because, <laughs> excuse me, the, 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 peop- the, the employers that it affects, I would say 80, 90 percent of them are offering benefits and have been offering benefits anyway. It's those marginal companies, you know, I've got a couple of clients that are, are um, they clean homes, okay? Most of their employees are part-time. So when they factor in how they calculate what, a, you know, whether they have 100 or more employees, it's all ba- based upon the average number of employees. But it, just because you average more than 100 employees doesn't mean all those employees are eligible for benefits. They have to be full-time employees, which the administration and the law redefined as to 30 hours, and that's coming uh, under scrutiny as well, should a full-time employee be 30 hours. That's, that could be tweaked out to 35 hours. So those small businesses that are on the lower end of the wage scale, they're just going to have more part-time employees than full-time employees, so they're not so much the issue. Now, well, what about those what, I'm sorry, for, but what about those companies that have more than what was it, 49 employees? Do they get hit harder? If you have more than uh, 50 employees? Well, it's going, well, they're going to be mandated to offer insurance to their full-time employees. Plain and simple. But so they're either going to be dropping people down in hours because if they don't, they go out of business altogether. So, and, and we've already seen that. We've, you know, so we know that's going to happen. Um, you know, what's the quality of the insurance <laughs> that are being, that the small business, I know they're now there's, if you got a certain amount of employees, you got to provide health insurance. But what's the quality of health insurance that they're providing their employees in relation to the cost that they have to pay? And I think that's that's an interesting point. And and the point to that is when when we see that the health care costs have dropped, and we'll see it. You know, they'll start reporting their numbers. I've already seen the numbers. The health care uh, expenses for 2012 has dropped. Part of that is is because the cost of using your plan is expensive. You have more upfront dollars than than. So we have a lot of people that have insurance, but they're not using their insurance because the cost too much to go to see a doctor or to the emergency room. So we're going to see some of those numbers you know drop. But that the point to that is the plans are not like they were 15 years ago. Those plans that we had 15 years ago are becoming they're being priced out now are i'm sorry go ahead so in order to afford a, uh, the insurance plan we have to drop the, the the type of coverage that it's giving us so to your your question we're not getting covered on the less expensive types of procedures doctor visits and and those types of things we're, we're going to wind up paying more for those 
than we had in the past. Now, I've been reading in the news reports and, you know, throughout the media and stuff, you're seeing it that insurance premiums are going up. And I know the insurance companies have to go to the states that they reside in to get the approval for doing that. Is that now because they're finally they finally identified here are the the factors, here's what's going on. There's no ambiguity. Now we can move forward and we can get the actual cost of what the insurance costs. Well, yes. I mean, when they when the law first came out, or when the mandate, individual mandate first came out in 2014, which meant that small businesses and individuals were, were classified in that same uh, pool of ins- potential insureds, what they call a risk pool. And in that risk pool, they were no longer able to use future claims experience. So based upon this demographic, we expect our claims to be X. They can no longer do that. So now we're going into 2016, and they're revising their premiums um, based upon the experience they now have from 2014 and 2015. So I I do anticipate that the claim that the uh, premiums are going to go up because of the experience that they now have. I think they were just you know kind of taking a shot in the dark uh, at, at, in the first year. In the second year, they had a little bit more data to create more accurate rates. But I think you know coming in sixteen and then again in seventeen, um, we're going to see these rates go up relative to what the uh, premiums are, uh, relative to what the the claims and the demographics are. But what's going to happen is as the rates go up because of their experience, when we get to 2018 and that Cadillac tax k- kicks in, we're going to find out that it's not just going to be for the very wealthy or the, the higher income earners that are taking the better plans. We're going to see all the rates are going to increase. So we're going to see potentially that all rates – I would say maybe even 60 to 70% of the plans are going to be subject to that Cadillac tax, the way the formula is derived. Okay. Now, just for my listeners, what is the Cadillac tax and what does that encompass? Well, it's going to put a 40% surcharge on top of any plan. And I I forget exactly what the, the number is. But a premium that exceeds an annual premium that exceeds a the threshold, and and I'd have to go and pull the numbers of what that threshold is, but as the premium and it, and it's the the threshold is relative to the income or the poverty level, and and comparison to other plans. So as the rates go up, even for let's say a silver level plan or the top two thirds of the plans, that's sixty percent of the plans. As the premiums go up, 60% of the plans are going to exceed the threshold because they have more experience in calculating the rates, and the rates are going to go up a lot more. So that 40% that's going to be charged to the insurance carrier, but we know that that's going to be passed through. We know that we're going to get hit with some of that money, and that's going to manifest itself in the increase of premiums. Now, the unions, I know um, the AFL-CIO director, Trump, I think is his name, he was against trying to uh, um, get an exemption for that Cadillac tax. Now, are most unions 
part of that Cadillac tax or encompassing that. And that said, if that Cadillac's tax goes away, what does that do for the cost of the health care law? Well, the unions are going to feel the br- a big brunt of that Cadillac tax because one of the things that unions do is provide better benefits. Correct. And so, as the benefit, in, you know, as the benefits are, get better and better, then they're going to see that surcharge, and that's part of the problem. The unions, once that got slipped in, and they didn't really analyze it well, and see what the ramifications were. That's one of the reasons they were all they were for this. Now, once they realized what was going on, and the die was cast, all of a sudden they're asking for their exemptions. Um, you know, they've already they already denied that exemption. So, but see, so so then what happens if they, let's say let's say a Democrat gets in the White House? They tend to be strong supporter of unions, and they give them that exemption. Doesn't that raise the cost for everybody else? Well, absolutely, because that 40 percent surcharge is now going to be split amongst fewer people. I did find the threshold. So in 2018, a 40 percent tax is going to be charged to plans that cost ten thousand two hundred dollars on an individual basis. That's starting in 2018. And so as I've got people, you know, people, that's that's like eight hundred dollars a month, roughly a little bit more than that. But that's right now. In two years, as rates go up, now the, and people are, are getting their advanced premium tax credits. This is not talking about what somebody pays for the plan. We're talking about the cost of the plan. Okay. So if they're getting advanced premium tax credits, that plan may may be very well eight hundred dollars a month, even though they're only paying three hundred dollars a month of it. Yeah. Now that's going to be a big impact on the economy. <laughs> yes, and so that's going to, you know, cause the price, the rates to go up, because that forty percent excise tax that's being charged mm-hmm. to the employer, uh, to the insurer, to the insurer. Remember, they've got this medical loss ratio that says they have to use at least eighty percent of their premiums to cover the cost of claims. Well, if that's going in, that's going to be increased. That's going to be increased on the administrative side. Well, if that if their administrative side goes up, then their that ratio of twenty percent administrative costs now becomes higher. So premiums will go will be they'll be allowed to increase the premiums to maintain that eighty twenty ratio. Now, if they if they can't maintain that eighty twenty ratio, I know it was somewhere in the, the Affordable Care Act, and I'm not sure what page that they would get a bailout to cover. If they don't meet their threshold, is that is that accurate? And where is that money going to come from? It's all coming from from the consumer's pocket. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. You know. So what will eventually happen is people will stop taking those better plans that the insurance will cover more, and they'll be left. They'll be using more bare bone plans, which means that their usage is going to decrease because they can't afford to use the plans. So the insurance company is really going to be on the hook for catastrophic type of events, you know, medical expenses that are $10,000 or above. Well, if we do the analysis and we see that, you know, the lion's share, you know, of of individuals use less than $700 a year of medical expenses, you know, what does that tell you about the insurance companies? Their, their, Their risk is being decreased. Their risk is guaranteed by the law as well. Yeah, so it's... It's going to be interesting. Now, has anybody, I mean, with all these changes, especially after the Supreme Court decision, I know it's fairly new, 
Has the Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan group, have they analyzed, at least get a, a ballpark figure, how much this law, which was stated to cost this, how much does it cost now? Um, they probably have, but honestly, if I looked at it today and compared it to what I saw last month, it would be a different number, and it's going to be a different number six months ago, and it'll be a different number in six months from now. So I really can't put a whole great deal of stock in that because, A, in my opinion, those numbers are skewed by, you know, to benefit you know, whoever wants, whoever's asking for those numbers. They're asking for them for a particular reason, and in today's instance, it's the executive office wants to, the CBO to show that they're going to save a whole boatload of money. But they're not factoring in several things, and one of those things that, you know, is completely outside of this is is the cost of the debt, and as that in, as the the percentage of the you know the, the interest rates increase, that debt's going to increase as well. Well, correct, because that's what the um, well the Federal Reserve under Janet Yellen they're looking at raising interest rates, possibly September, maybe the latest is December, but they're eventually going to go up. And you know, so and you're, so the CBO, which is all always, you know, the, where people don't know the difference between debt and deficit, and it's really the debt that is the concern because the deficit is, you know, lower when the interest rates are lower. Correct. Now the um, with this thing with the Supreme Court, and this was all about the states and federal subsidies. How does this now impact the states, especially those states that don't have an exchange? Are they going to set up their own? But I know there's some states like Hawaii, theirs went broke, so they're jumping on the federal. Oregon did it. Maryland did it. And I think Cover California is not fiscally sound now. So how does this impact the states? I think that we're going to see more states dropping their own because they have to show that they can generate enough revenue to maintain their own exchange. Well, a lot of these probably, and, I, and I'm almost positive, they set up their, their exchanges based upon their states getting tax subsidies because of the wording of the law, which said that Correct. every state set up their exchanges to get the subsidies. Well, now that that's not the case, what, what's in it to the state to run, their own, to run their own? Well, considering the states have to maintain, I mean, I think, I think it's over 43 states, including Florida, have to have a balanced budget. So that's why a lot of states didn't set up a state exchange because the federal government, I think, pays 100 percent. And then each subsequent year, they start to drop down. Well, the states, and we're seeing it now, are broke. Well, and that was based upon um, the expansion of Medicaid, where the Correct. federal government would, would cover the cost of the, of the Medicaid enrollees um, at 100 percent for the first, I think, two or three years and then drop it down eventually to where the states are going to be required to pay 10% um, of the cost of Medicaid. The problem with that is nobody understands what the, you know, nobody can predict what the cost of, of Medicaid is going to be. And that's why a lot of states backed away from that because that's the unknown that they could not factor into their budget. Well, but you make a good point because the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services reported, a, I believe there was $135 million in I'm sorry, 107 million in 2013. Now they're saying that Medicare and Medicaid will increase to 135 million by 2018. So I guess the question is, where's all this money coming from? Well, if it, if they're talking about Medicaid increase, Medicare increases, that's just a natural thing, and we're seeing ten thousand dollars, ten thousand people a day becoming Medicare eligible. 
Okay, but if we're talking about Medicaid expansion, now we're taking people from 7000 something to be eligible for Medicaid up to like $12,000 to be eligible for Medicaid. So you got that 7000 to $12,000 segment that if you haven't expanded Medicaid, those people in that price, in that income range, they're not eligible for either subsidies or Medicaid. So we don't know what those that number is, uh, but if you do increase, add those people in, they're just going to increase the cost, the, the current cost of Medicaid, and the federal government's going to start is not going to be funding it 100% going forward. Uh, you know, I, I I get the I get the humane thing to do. Well, I I live you know we have a, a, a saying in in our business of doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. So I, I I think it would be good if we could do it, but is that the, is it the right thing to do to cover a certain segment of the population at the risk at, and risking a whole larger segment of a population? You know what is the right thing to do, and that that is ultimately the question that I can't answer. Well, but see that's a, I think that's a valid point because Medicare and I know Medicaid are entitlement systems are taking up a good, I mean, well over, I think, 60%, depends who you, what reports you go to, of the budget. Well, I would so, say Medicare is an entitlement system. I wouldn't say Medicaid is. Okay, you don't say Medicaid is, but now does the, for Medicaid, the federal government gives certain certain amount of money, or do they cover all the cost of Medicaid, or is that left up more to the states? Well, there's, there's a sharing in there. When I call, when I say Medicare is entitlement, I say it's entitlement because, we as employees, consumers, and working consumers have paid into Medicare for all these years, just like Correct. Social Security is Security. entitlement. We are entitled to it because we earned it. But some of these other social programs, um, I wouldn't call those entitlement programs. They are really welfare programs. But even with Medicare, I know you're not saying it's, a, it's an entitlement program. You know, like Social Security, we paid into it, but... There's not a whole lot of workers out there that are paying into the system, and there's more people retiring. We're getting older, and we're going to use these programs. But is from what I've been reading, Medicare is not really as solvent as people think it is. Medicare, no, because some of the the um, ulterior funding for Medicare we've been paying into with our Medicare tax out of our paychecks, you know, for years. But that's not the only funding for Medicare. And some of that alternative alternative funding is now being redirected to cover some of the costs of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, so it's it's interesting as this law moves forward. I mean, I'm not sure they thought through everything. I mean, you can't think of everything, but I think it's thinking the way it was presenting the way it was put through that there are some challenges ahead to this thing. Uh, you know, look, consider this one. When, they, when the CBO put together their budget on future costs, what did they calculate as the cost of medical care when it came to reimbursements from, for, to doctors? The current costs or future costs? Because that's changing now. That, once, that, once that gets through and signed, they're going to get increases. The physicians and, and, and hospitals are going to get increases on the Medicare reimbursement. Did they calculate that? Because that was 11 years ago, the last time they had an increase. Correct. And that's a good point that you're bringing up because we've talked about this, I think, in the last um, discussion that aren't primary care doctors just leaving in, like, in droves because of the reporting requirements 
And what does that do to the cost of the Affordable Care Act? Well, and, and really, what does it do to, the, to our care? I think is really Correct. a bigger question because what's happening is a lot of doctors, are, they're just leaving private practice and not going into private practice. So they're going into these doctor-managed groups where they have one centralized billing office and then you've got doctors that are no longer under their own guidelines. They basically become employees of this medical practice group. And so they're, they have their quotas now in order to, to hit their budget, they have to see X number of, of, of patients. So what does that actually do for patient care? You know, if they have, if they have quotas they have to do, what does that actually do for, for medical costs? Because now they have to hit certain quotas. So is that actually going to decrease costs? Uh, you know, I, the jury's going to be out on that one for, for a while, but um, you know, if, if, if I got to pay $1,500 out of my pocket with insurance for a colonoscopy and an endoscopy to figure out why I'm having, you know, um, acid reflux, or I could take, you know, Tums and some Gaviscons to, to prevent it from reoccurring, what am I going to do? Now, the, the other two things that were not really discussed when they did the Affordable Care Act was tort reform and... I guess the way they call it, preventative measures to prevent you know people being healthier because we, we're living longer. A lot of pe- Americans are not the healthiest when they should be. So how do preventative health or preventative measures and tort reform affect the Affordable Care Act? Well, uh, tort reform, um, what that's going to potentially do if you if it ever happens, which basically means we can't sue a doctor for $2 million because he amputated the wrong foot. Okay, we can only get, you know, $250,000. I'm not sure that $2 million is enough money for somebody to take my the wrong foot off of me. So by lowering what they have to pay out, that lowers their cost of medical malpractice insurance, which lowers their office operating expenses. So potentially we could see... Premium, uh, reimbursement rates drop because the administrative costs aren't as high. Um, I don't know if we're going to see reimbursement rates. We may see less. The doctor doesn't have to see as many patients because he has he doesn't have as much um, expenses to cover. So that's that's one thing. But I don't know that that's actually going to uh, get a, get a lot of traction. I know we talk about it, but there's a lot of lobby out there that's, that wants to not have that happen. No, and that was, I think, um, Howard Dean, who was the Democratic nominee for president, what, 2004, he even was asked that, how come tort reform, and he's a, a physician himself, and he goes, and you're absolutely right, the lobbying industry would never allow that to happen, so that wasn't going to be placed into it. But what about the preventative side? I mean, we spend a lot of time trying to heal people from being sick, but what do we do, and is it part of the Affordable Care Act to get people to be healthier themselves? It's a nice thought, but it, it requires a, a major paradigm shift of the consumer to actually not just hear what the doctor says, but to listen and do what the doctor says. And what I'm talking about is the doctor's going to tell you that you need to exercise more, eat less, eat healthier, and you know, and get do the types of things to make yourself healthier. So what the doctor's telling us is that we have to change our habits. Anybody knows that a ha- how difficult it is to change a habit. 
let alone several habits. So, you know, you walk out of the dock, and I do it. I'm just as guilty. I know I'm supposed to be exercising every day for 30 minutes, and I know you're diligent about it, but how many people are? And so that's what the doctors are going to tell them to do. So you don't need preventative care to know what you're supposed to do. Now, but could it be if in as we move forward with the Affordable Care Act, and I don't know how you would implement this, that almost like a driver, if you're a good driver, you pay less in car insurance. If you live an unhealthy lifestyle or you're not your body mass is not proportionate to whatever standard they're set, that you would pay more in health insurance just because you're going to be using the healthcare fee, healthcare system more than somebody who's healthy? Well, that's one of that's one of the things that I that I grandstand about and that is that some of the money that they're taking in or however they're going to fund the Affordable Care Act that they need to fund education. They you know whether you know it be cooking classes, um, gym memberships, those types of things. We need to and it's not going to impact my generation. And it may not have that impact in my kids' generation, but if we can start it on my grandkids' generation, then yes, I think that the future could change because we need to change the culture of this of society, and that is to get away from convenience and you know stop you know putting the kids in front of the you know on the Xbox to keep them busy. No, that's a good point. I mean. I remember when I was a kid, you spent more time outside than you did inside. Going outside was the punishment, right? Get outside and play. Don't come in until the sun I mean, goes down. That's the way we were brought up. But you, but you rode bikes. You, you, if you wanted to get somewhere, it was use your, your feet to get where you need to go. And it seems like today, I mean, I exercise fairly regularly, but you don't see a lot of young people in the gyms anymore. No, if I want to, if I want to buy something, I jump on the internet and I, have it, I pay for it and have it delivered. Exactly. So I think that, you know, if we can change the culture of society to one of health and let it be true health care and not sick care, I think that maybe we can drive those costs down. But until we, you know, we figure out a way and to eat healthier, live healthier lifestyles and create that as our lifestyle, I don't think we have a chance. Yeah, I would agree. So now what do you think is... I mean, for the final question, what do you think would be the future of the Affordable Care Act, especially as we go through this next presidential election cycle? I think we're going to see um, on the individual side, I think we're going to see a lot more of less benefits um, and that if you want to increase your benefits, you're going to you're going to pay for a supplement. So we're you know, we may wind up where everybody gets is given some level of health care. You know, so maybe that's at the Medicaid level where you get to go to your doctor twice a year for your checkup. And if you're really if if you're really sick, you get to go to a doctor. But anything, any kind of elective elective procedure or anything like that, you're not they're not going to do that. But if you're if you're in a position where you can afford to buy some type of medical supplement like they do on the Medicare side, then those people that have, uh, you know, a little bit higher earners, a little bit more uh, income, they're the ones that are going to go ahead and, and pay for that kind of coverage. Yeah, uh, I just think this isn't going away anytime soon. I know both sides are entrenched in their ideology, but I think both sides are going to have to come together at some point. We're not going to be like it was in 2010 
Republicans and Democrats, and I think no matter who becomes president is going to have to work with the other side to fix this or whatever they're going to do with it and how whatever, but metastasize out of this. I think people need to accept, you know, the fact that this is, this is what people want and that our elective officials have to stop acting on what I want and start doing what my constituents are asking for. And they're asking yeah. for some for healthcare. The problem is that it's going to be cyclical where they were getting healthcare before, except that the doctors or the hospitals that they were the ones that were absorbing a lot of that cost. Well, yeah, and that's and that's one thing we didn't even go into, and that's another that's could be a, another discussion because that would be another couple hour talk on that. But but Les, how do people find out about your company? Well, um, locally, you know, they can find us in in a lot of community activity. Um, if they want to check us out on the web, it's um, Al Saland Insurance. That's A as in April, L as in Les. And then S A L A N D insurance.com. If they want to give us a call, it's 813 995 0292. We're here pretty much Monday through Friday from nine to six. Um, clients of ours, they've got my cell phone number, so they can get a hold of me pretty much 24 7. Um, and that's pretty much it. You know, we're gearing up for. Another round of certifications coming up in another four to six weeks between the, the marketplace and Medicare. So we'll be ready to go for 2016. I think we're going to see some interesting changes um, in plan designs. Like I said earlier, the insurance carriers have a lot more experience under their belt than they did uh, even last year, let alone two years ago. No, I would, I, I would agree. I think changes are coming. But I want to thank you, Les, for coming on again to explain. This is a very complicated issue and topic and i do appreciate you coming on again to explain the ramifications after the supreme court's decision so i want to thank les who's the owner of al saland insurance solutions he's a as you can listen if you listen to this he's a recognized expert on the affordable care act or obamacare continue to listen to ubaldi reports we're going to have more individuals like Les to discuss the the hot topics of the day and if you get a chance you can read my book the new business brigade it's the premise is why businesses need to hire veterans and the untapped resource they represent. So you can find the new business brigade on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of the major book uh, distributors. And if you get the chance, go to iTunes and Stitchers and sign up for free and listen to this podcast and leave a comment and what you think of it and what you want to hear in the future. So I'd like to thank you, Les, for coming on the show. You're welcome. And thank you for the opportunity, John. Anytime, have a great day, and for my listeners, keep continuing to listen to Ubaldi Reports. 